Software teams are traditionally composed of roles such as project manager, developer, QA, and manager. What happens if you throw out all of those titles, hire mostly engineers, and ask them to do whatever they think is best, whether it's related to business or engineering or project management? You just give the engineers complete freedom. That is the core idea behind Fred George's Developer Anarchy. In today's episode, David Curry guest hosts an interview with Fred George. They talk about the structure of teams, the idea of developer anarchy, how Fred George uh, implemented developer anarchy at a company that he worked at very successfully. For a great compliment to this episode, check out the Software Engineering Radio episode about developer anarchy. This is when I first heard about it, and that was one of my favorite episodes of Software Engineering Radio, which is saying a lot because I listen to that show incessantly. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, please send me any feedback, please send me any recommendations for topics, and any other uh, things you want to send me an email about. topic is on developer career progression. Joining us for the discussion is Fred George. Fred is a consultant with over 44 years of experience in the software industry. He counts at least 70 languages with which he has written code and is the pioneer of programmer anarchy. Fred, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thank you. Yep. Uh, just to get a bit of your background, can you tell us how you started in technology uh, and some of the positions you've held throughout your career? I'm, I'm not sure we have enough time on the podcast for that, but uh, I, st- I started out as a, doing some programming in high school in 1968. Uh, found I, I actually gravitated nicely toward it, then took my computer science degree in NC State uh, in 1970 through 73. Um, so I worked for IBM for 17 years immediately after that. Uh, a lot of interesting assignments there. Uh, and also got, a, got a, a taste for both management and and for actually technology leadership, because uh, I, I was a part of several different initiations of new technology into the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I left and became a consultant on my own, uh, specializing in object programming and, and graphical user interfaces, which were new at the time. Moved on to, the, to joining ThoughtWorks for four years. Uh, got a chance to travel around the globe and see quite a bit of the, the world that way. Uh, stopped off in London for about seven years uh, after that, uh, working with a, with a startup and a very large uh, publishing company. Uh, got sucked into a startup in California, which was just too good to turn down. So I did that for a while. And now I'm kind of semi-retired attending the conference circuits. Wow, that's, uh, that is quite the career path. Um, so I guess given given all of that and, and sort of where the, the industry is today, can you give us a broad overview of the available positions for a developer um, and where they may branch off? I guess maybe starting from sort of like a junior and then, uh, you know, stepping up in the career ladder. And, and, and what does that look like? Um, I'm probably not a believer in that anymore. Okay. Uh, in fact, pretty well, uh, we've abandoned basically the concept of titles in companies where I have that sort of influence. For instance, in the California startup, we only had one title for a developer. It was developer. And we were assembly flat on our business side. Um, I found over my years that, you know, the years of experience uh, may make you a better programmer, but not necessarily. Uh, I've had much more success finding people who have great conceptual skills regardless of their age. 
Uh, I also went through a, many years at IBM where I was basically too young to make the decisions I was asked to make. Uh, and therefore, I was given the opportunity to make those decisions. Uh, so as I started my management career in IBM, I made sure I didn't make that mistake with my juniors. Um, so I put quite a few very young people into very, very uh, important roles very young in their careers because, frankly, they were the best guys to put in that role. Uh, so I've, I've kind of abandoned the titles. Uh, I guess one way we say in the industry is uh, we, we distinguish between 10 years of experience and 10 years, 10 times one year of experience. So if you're doing Java programming for the last 10 years, I'm not sure you have but one year experience in Java. Okay, that actually uh that actually would would makes me think about your your um advocacy for programmer anarchy. Um so maybe maybe we can jump to that and you can tell me a little bit about what is programmer anarchy. Well, first thing I would say is it's first of all the the primary definition of anarchy is actually a self-organizing group. The organization is not imposed from the outside. Uh, so that's when I say anarchy, that's what I was referring to. Uh, but also, I would say it's also was a marketing term at the time. Uh, I was in a London startup. Uh, London is a very competitive market for programmers. You have uh, the banks who will pay obscene amount of money for a programmer. And by the way, it's really bad work, but it's a lot of money. And then you have you know people like Google also sitting in town. So we're trying to recruit against these two forces. And so we came up with the moniker of Programmer Anarchy to describe the style of programming we had, which was largely self-directed teams at the time. So the idea was at that point, we were solving particular type of problems that, you know, is called in the Kneffen model by uh, Dave Snowden, it's called the complex problems. These are the fuzzy types of problems, the problems like uh, that you'll see that have no real cause and effect relationships. So financial markets, unpredictable. Uh, Google advertising, unpredictable, which was what we were playing in. Uh, should I loan you a book? Should I loan you money? Uh, what would you like to, you know, are you a good credit risk for, uh, for, for another type of loan? These are sort of fuzzy problems. And frankly, this is where we make, people make a lot of money these days in the fuzzy problems. The, the complicated problems, the ones like finance and, uh, accounting sort of things, as well as, uh, payroll, other things like that, uh, those are called complicated problems. Uh, they're, they're complicated, but they do have solutions and they have very well defined solutions. And those problems, by the way, have been solved. And so, um, you know, we solved those in our, my, you know, first 30 years of my programming experience. So to some degree, we were solving these complex problems. When you don't have a cause and effect relationship in a problem, uh, you have to just try things. And it turns out competitive advantage is how fast I can try things out. So from an idea till I get some idea whether this is going to make me money or not. Uh, complex problems are also interesting because something that works today may not work tomorrow. So you have to have about zero memory about what you did yesterday. Just try again today to make some money. So this was the environment we were dropped into. So, so once we understand that competitive advantage is how fast you go, you start looking at you know, classic waste analysis that you see with just-in-time manufacturing or the lean thinking. Uh, so one of the things we, we identify very quickly is if I don't have any particular uh, expertise, I don't need to have, you know, basically tiers of programmers, which have more expertise, expertise than others. Um, I'm looking for programmers that are basically very bright, uh, will try ideas out, and have, you know, no problems about failing today and trying something else tomorrow. So it was a, definitely a, a mentality shift. Uh, and a programmer who wants to come to work every day, had no way he's going to do every day and go home every day like that. Uh, this is not the environment for them. Uh, the other thing that happens in, in this environment is the managers, their role kind of goes away. 
managers, by and large, are supposed to make sure people are on track with what they're supposed to be doing. But he doesn't know what they're supposed to be doing any more than they do. Uh, so a lot of his value actually evaporates. And you're probably better off just hiring more programmers instead of hiring that manager. That allows you to try more ideas out. And so finally, also business analysts, you know, again, he doesn't know what the right answer is. So he's pretty useless as well. So we started eliminating those roles. So we took the managers out of the process. We took the product, we certainly took the sort of the scrum masters out of the process. Because again, from a process perspective, it's how fast can I try something? It's not a matter of, you know, let's, what iteration planning meeting, what stories are going to play, how much these stories cost. These are almost nonsense questions for a complex environment. So they went away. Um, and finally, we decided the programmers are best served by managing themselves. Um, so we had the idea that, you know, the programming team may have a spokesperson. So this is a person that interfaces with the outside world, but he's almost the ambassador. He's not the person who's responsible for making decisions, uh, like an ambassador can't make decisions for the country. So we'd send him out there as an ambassador. Uh, we also decided that the right mentor for a programmer is probably somebody the programmer picks, not necessarily somebody you call the manager, whose job is to mentor him. And so we let programmers be a little more selective about who they wanted to follow in their career path. This sort of encouraged people to stay as a technical rather than try to move into a management track, particularly since we had no management positions. And finally, we also eliminate the concept of testers. Uh, because we're pushing things out very fast, we put the metrics into our system. So we can deploy into the system to see what the metrics look like. And so we created a sort of very risk, risk-free or very friendly de- deployment environment. And we basically tested our stuff on our customers. Uh, you know, if we're trying Google advertising, we try this ad for you. You don't click on it. Then maybe it's a bad ad. But nobody dies. Nobody gets a bad bank statement. So the nature of a complex problem is that, you know, it's fuzzy. So therefore, I don't necessarily have to have the best answer. I just have an answer that works for today. So with that in mind, we started eliminating positions, and it allowed us to go faster. If I don't have a handoff between my business analyst and and the rest of the team, programmers, I go faster. If I don't have to have a a retrospective, I go faster. If I don't have to have an iteration planning meeting, sit down and size stories up, I go faster. And if I'm deploying to live environments, I don't need my ops team, I don't need my testing team, uh, I go faster. So we got to the point where we were deploying something new in production about every three and a half minutes. Wow. So that's so. So what we're talking about here is sort of a self-contained, self-managed group of developers, and you you eliminate the uh, the other layers like testers, uh, business analysts, and managers, and all of that is maintained by the developer developer team. Yes, and we also saw a phenomenon that says we want to build our code very decoupled. And so, you know, the smaller the piece of code is and more decoupled it is from other pieces of code, then the less risk it is of deploying it by itself. And so we got heavily into microservices in the very early days of that concept. I see. And and so this is this is like a, a big, you know, this is kind of a radical shift in the eyes of, of some organizations where the culture is sort of ingrained and um, traditional. Um, do you think that this will become more common in the future, the, the, the programmer anarchy style of things? Yes. In fact, uh, Eric Meyer is starting to talk about it now. He calls it one hacker way. Uh, but if you listen to what he talks about, it's about self-directing teams, uh, focusing on rapid delivery of ideas, uh, those same sort of concepts that we're talking about as well. So I think it, I think it's a recognition by the industry that there are a certain class of problems, you know, the fuzzy problems, to which traditional methodologies don't, don't hold water. 
And if you try to stick to that, guess what? Your competitors are not doing sticking to that. They're coming at you fast and hard. And to some degree, if you look at Facebook as an example versus MySpace, you know, MySpace was trying to run itself as a more traditional software team. Uh, you know, they had plans, they had release plans and content. Facebook was just, just trying ideas out. Some ideas worked really well, some ideas didn't work so well. Uh, and finally, they found out the same way everybody else found out. Oh, it was a bad idea because the trade press talks about something, and off, sure enough, they change it back. But they were out there trying ideas aggressively. But MySpace was sitting there saying, oh, my goodness, this is a Facebook feature. I need to put it on my MySpace, so let's put it in our release plan. And so it's three months out. And before three months passes, there's another Facebook feature. I need to put that in my release plan. Okay, let's change our plans. And, of course, now they get nothing out the door. So in the, in the fuzzy world, uh, advantage goes to the fast reactor, the person who can deliver quickest the new solutions. I see. So do you, do you think that there's, um, getting back to the, the, the traditional uh, workplace, do you think that uh, that style of, of um, methodology of working may work better than the programmer anarchy in some situations? I think if you have a large legacy code base, um, the legacy code base was designed and optimized around those sorts of roles, where I have architects that are sort of looking at it at a high level. You have various review committees and the like. Uh, you certainly have a role for QA because you haven't got the rich testing environments uh, and rich test cases that you need. So you got to make sure there's some secondary things. And there's also a kind of a decentralization of, of, of responsibility. There's kind of responsibility only at the highest levels of the organization for the product. Uh, Individual programmers are not responsible for what they necessarily wrote that day because they don't know this probably will get shipped for another four or five months. So I think in those environments, and those are solving, those are still solving the complicated problems, the ones that have solutions. They're just, you know, complicated. I think with solving those solutions, a traditional organization uh, is kind of fine. I think the other organization will also work fine in that environment, but there's certainly a role for the experts in this world. So there'd be a, a role for somebody who knows more than somebody else does, whether he's called a business analyst or your chief designer. Uh, there's certainly that role associated with with those big applications solving complicated problems. Sure. So, um, it, looking at a, a developer um, that's maybe moving into or w- would like to move into that type of environment, what are some of the um, what are some of the skill sets that uh, that you would look for for someone to that would fit well in that environment? I, there's two things I look for when I hire somebody, um, and it's, doesn't, it's not saying based on experience. Um, I'm looking for strong conceptual skills. Uh, in other words, they have the ability to reason uh, in, and solve new problems as new problems come up. Um, you can sort of judge that somewhat at the interview process, but frankly, sitting down and, and writing some code with them, uh, as many companies now do, uh, is a good way to sort of you know, stretch their ideas. Put a challenging problem in front of them, see how they handle it in real time. Uh, so that's, that seems to be very good. The second trait I'm looking for is they love to learn. Uh, we're in an environment where, you know, you can use a language of 20 years ago and you're out of, almost out of date. Uh, if you're a COBOL programmer, you could have trouble finding work. And if you think you're going to go to school, learn a language, and then just sit on it the rest of your career, uh, you haven't, you're not, you're in the wrong career path. And so I'm looking for people who like to learn. And you can sort of see that by oh, you open up their open source projects, uh, see if they have a GitHub account, uh, see what sort of stuff they have in their GitHub account. They go to meetups associated with strange new languages like Elixir or Clojure. Uh, that shows to me a, a willingness to learn. And so that's the sort of thing I'm looking for. 
is those two traits, regardless of how how old they are, how many years they've been in the business. Actually, that that uh, kind of leads me to to discuss some of the soft skills that are required. Um, you know, as a developer, uh, a person's soft skills are equally important as their technical skills uh, many times, and so. Do you think do you think it is important for a person to be heavily involved uh, in technology outside of work in terms of, like you said, their, their GitHub account? Maybe they're doing projects outside of work or, um, you know, technical involvement. I don't think it's essential, but I think it's, it's important that they're doing something challenging all the time. Um, a lot of people we've hired in the companies I worked with stopped okay. doing open source. Uh, and the reason they stop doing that is well, they find the, the work we have more challenging than the open source projects. They're doing open source because they're writing C++ code for a bank every day. And it was just they're bored to tears. They want to stretch their mind a little bit at least once during the day. If you create the work environment that has that nature into it, then they don't need to scratch that itch outside of work. And frankly, I'd rather have them thinking about all the hard problems I have than trying to invent some new open source you know, phenomenon. And and so I imagine you'd have to be a pretty strong uh, team player, so to speak, in in um, a programmer anarchy environment. Yeah, you definitely need to be. There, then there's a certain percentage of people that uh, just can't work well in groups uh, for whatever reason there may be. I, I would say maybe even up to 10 percent of the programmers are sort of fall in that category. Uh, but that's always been an issue since we got bigger than than sort of what one program could do by themselves. Uh, you, the, the concept of going off by yourself and doing something significant for a business is pretty slim. Uh, things are just too complicated. You, you need collaborators to work with you. Uh, and also, you're missing that learning opportunity from working with somebody who has something else, that they know something you don't know. So I've been a huge advocate of pair programming throughout my, throughout my career since you know I was introduced to that in the late 90s. Because uh, what I've found is it's extremely powerful for teaching, yet doesn't impact your productivity. So if I'm trying to solve a problem, and it could have back-end and front-end components, if I put a back-end programmer pair with a front-end programmer, uh, they can solve that problem. They don't need any outside help. They don't need you know, anybody else to sort of run that for them. They can do that. Uh, but also, at the end of the day, if they pair together, my front-end guy knows a little bit where I'm back-end and vice versa. So I have two slightly smarter programmers. Now, you do that for every day after for six months. I got two guys who can do everything. I got two full stack developers, each of which is way more valuable than they were before. Each of which is able to take a problem and drive it to conclusions. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, in terms of going fast, that's your know, fastest communication is something communication you don't have to have because I have both the skills myself. Sure. And that, that actually makes me think. So if, if, um, if, you know, we have listeners work, uh, working in the traditional work environment, um, that could be a way for them to, introduce this concept into their current um, workspace without sort of, you know, freaking everybody out and, and shifting the, the entire culture of it? Um, I think I think it's hard to do this on the sly. Uh, but yes, I mean, it certainly helps to do that. Um, I worked with a, a publishing firm in London, and we basically went in there and I, you know, basically what I found was was very siloed people. The, the, the siloed specialists were sitting all together. Uh, they kept pointing fingers back to the other idiots across the tables that were other tables because they didn't understand what's really going on. And in fact, nobody really understood what's going on because of that isolation from each other. So we took some pretty radical approach to that we basically, you know, tore, tore out the desk completely, put tables in, 
and said, you're going to work at the table associated with your project, you know, regardless of your, of your background or skill. So your front end, your front end or back end, or in some cases, QA, because we still need some QA for some legacy stuff. All you guys are sitting at the same table and you're solving the problem. And I don't want to hear anything about you know, individual specialists. I want to hear about the problems being solved. So we push them hard to sort of create that environment where they are working closely with each other. They are pairing across those skill bits. Uh, we're also interested, very interested in that environment to build these full stack developers, as we call them, you know, the guys who can do more than one thing. So we went out of our way to say, oh, if, if a person wants to learn some front end skills, let's put him on a team that needs front end skills and pair with somebody who does have the front end skills and, and develop that program into a broader programmer. Uh, he's happier because he has more interesting work to do. Uh, we're happy because we have a more productive employee. Uh, so it was kind of win-win all around. And so when you say it's it's difficult to do it sort of on the sly or maybe piecemeal, is that because you you need the whole, um, you know, you need the whole methodology in place to get its true benefits? To some degree, it's, it's, the, it's the institutional parts of it that are going to stop you from working. So I'm a front-end programmer, for example, and I'm, I'm curious of working and see what Java is on the back end. What are these guys doing over here? Well, first of all, I, I work for a manager who's responsible for getting front end stuff done. So how is he, how, how does he feel about me going over there and hanging around with these guys and not necessarily being very productive? He doesn't understand the justification for that. Plus the other team, the team, the back end guys were getting me. It's like, why do I want to spend time with this guy? He doesn't know anything. You know, I'm going to give him a keyboard and try to teach him something. It doesn't help me get my job done. So go, no, go away. Uh, cause my guys are, are really good at back end and we're therefore more productive. Uh, so there's a lot of just institutional things that would just stop that from happening. And that person pretty much has to go find an open source project after hours if he wants to really develop this sort of rapport. And that's too bad. I mean, because you're here's a guy wanting to learn something and the company is stopping him from happening. Yeah, I can totally see that. And so what is like what is the promotion track in an environment like this? Uh, or, or what is the incentive to sort of do better and better? Uh, to some degree, it's, it's the sort of social nature of the, of the exercise. So if I'm sitting with a group of guys and they're producing like crazy and, and we can see each other doing this work, I'm kind of frankly embarrassed if I can't produce like crazy. Um, so I, I want, I don't want my colleagues down. I want to get them to work. So it turns out socially, the social pressure associated with that environment, uh, drives it in a very positive light. If everybody else is shipping, you know, twice a day to production and I, I haven't shipped anything for three or four days, you know, I'm feeling embarrassed by that. And they're probably looking at me a little strange as well. So the team dynamics sort of, you know, take, take care of that some, to a large degree. Now, maybe I just don't want to, this environment is just not for me. I, I like to do database work and I just, I just like writing SQL queries. Let me go find a job that does that. But these are environments I don't want to be in this environment. Right. Because I don't want to learn anything else. Now, if I'm interested in learning, I've just, I've, I've died and gone to heaven. I mean, this, I, I can work with this bright guy and this bright guy. This guy's done Java for 10 years. This guy's done SQL for five years. I can learn all these things. And so how is the work, um, s- separated for the team? If everybody, um, uh, is involved, do you just, um, you know, pair people up and expect them to do mostly back in 80% of the time? Or is it, you know, a rotation thing? How does that work? You're almost assuming that somebody's telling them how to get together and work. And that's not happening. What's really happening is we're laying out, here's, here's the problems to solve. And we're giving them experts that understand the domain in which they're working in, whether it's accounting, uh, 
internet advertising, whatever it is, we, we give them an expert in the domain so they can suck their, suck their brains about, you know, all those, all the stuff they need to learn about that stuff. But they're trying to solve the problems themselves. Uh, they decide who they want to work with. Uh, they decide what the most important thing to work on today is, what's going to have the biggest impact. Uh, they even are, are completely free to go in there and help instrument their own systems so that they can get better feedback on things that are successful or not. And they're free to try other tools that they think these tools may be more productive. And this, this actually is what sort of eliminates that desire to have positions and titles. If, if titles are in fact what you're living for, then yes, a traditional environment is going to be very positive for you. Uh, but titles, you know, to some degree are, are imbued because you have sort of your years of experience on something. I can't get this title unless you have five years experience in doing something. Hell, I could be a lot better than the other guy sitting beside me who has, yeah, and I have almost no experience in this space. So that's kind of what we found that, that if, if titles are at the forefront of the issues, then it becomes something that people, people are striving for and it's a status symbol. If you kill the titles, now the work satisfaction kicks in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and because of the way it's structured, you'd also have to hire pretty strong developers. I mean, you know, not everybody has to be on the same level, but you would have to have some strong developers in order for them to sort of lead and be proactive and creative and come up with some innovative ideas. Uh, to some degree, that's actually not true. Uh, certainly, you know, smarter programmers can produce more than, than less smart programmers. Uh, yeah, that, that's sort of, that's sort of phenomenal is true. But this environment is actually very positive for even for the average programmer. Uh, they want to be empowered to make decisions. Uh, they want to have access to easy resources without feeling guilty about asking a question or feeling stupid. Uh, they're not trying to bring in, you know, they're not trying to get the next promotion. They're trying to get some work done. And so their, their motivations become much more pure in that environment. And when we dropped we've taken over organizations and imposed this sort of, you know, anarchy structure into them. And those very average IT programmers were much more productive and much more happy in this new environment. So I think a lot of it has to do with the constraints we put on people uh, in more traditional environments, sort of telling them what they can't do rather than giving them freedom to try things and learn what they can and can't do. Uh, it's just a more positive environment. I mean, the sociologists tell us that, you know, at some point, salary stops being a motivator for a majority of people. It becomes quality of the work, you know, the challenge, the ability to make your own decisions uh, and be heard. Uh, these, this environment creates those, those things. So we had quite a few programmers join organizations we put together this way. I mean, people who take took large pay cuts from banks or started commuting an extra hour in and out of London to uh, to just to work in this environment. So it's very powerful to put this environment together and just watch people come to it. And so what do you say to the manager um, that maybe wants to be involved in this? Um, I, I guess they have to come up to speed on their technology skill sets and how do they contribute? Well, I think the, always your best managers have been the guys who realize that they're working for their team. Uh, we call it, you know, management inversion. It's not that I, you work for me and I tell you what to do. It's like, I'm here to help you get your job done because you're the expert in the technology. I'm the manager. Uh, my, my job is enabling you. Uh, those sort of guys thrive very well in this environment. Um, I also, you know, I like taking these sort of people and retraining the programmers as well. If you're moving to completely to the sort of the complex problems, their role is get quite a bit diminished. But if I take a manager who used to be a programmer at some point in his career and retrain him in the latest technologies, I can drop him into a team. And you know, he, he's a competent programmer at this point because he's, he's refreshing his skills, but he's an excellent people person. 
because he has that thing. So if there's some some sort of personnel issue going on within the team, he will recognize it very quickly. And he knows how to act and sort of resolve the situation without a lot of conflict. So I love having former managers and management experience in my sort of anarchy teams. And do you see teams like this, uh, multiple teams like this, working together? Or is this a, a, an isolated sort of environment? Uh, it turns out the ideal team size, the sociologists tell us, is about mm-hmm. five. Uh, I tend to go about six because I like pairing. Um, but I can basically take almost anything I've seen before and break it up into things that six-person teams can sort of handle. So I may go to eight or so, but you know, you can break things up into, into something that they can accomplish. And I like to keep these six to eight people together uh, across projects. Uh, in fact, the whole concept of project kind of dies off with, first of all, this uh, complex problems, but also dies off with, in the sort of the advent of microservices uh, because the development time is so short for these things. So instead of putting a team together every time I have a new project and, and they have this sort of gel time and they get to feel each other out before sort of the roles are established, um, you much rather keep these six, six to eight people that are working really well together together. And if you have a new business problem, bring the business problem to them. So bring a new customer in and say, let's the customer start educating them on the business problem. These guys know how to solve problems. Uh, one of the things we don't give programmers credit for is we're pretty good at solving problems. That's kind of why we're programmers. Uh, give us a problem. We're pretty good at solving it. So we underestimate the ability for, to just educate the programmers in your domain and how clever they can be in, in coming up with new and novel solutions to it. We've seen that happen certainly in my startups in, in uh, London. We saw that happen uh, in financial services firms in London as well when they started implementing these processes. So bring the work to the team. Let's don't play musical chairs with our with our programmers. Yeah, I'm just, I guess, um, I, I don't mean to jump all over the place, but I'm trying to, uh, number one, get a, get a good sense of what it means to be involved in programmer anarchy. What does that environment look like? But then also somehow um, um, let uh, a developer who's in a traditional work work environment understand that this is the type of environment you can be in or you can be in, you know, where you are now. But I guess kind of a bridge to get over to to programmer anarchy is I don't I mean, where I am now, I don't see a lot of this type of environment, but I'm like you said, I'm sure maybe the. The future will have more organizations that will use it. Um, so just trying to get a sense of like the skill sets that are needed, the the mindset shift, um, and and kind of the expectations of you uh, all around. Well, I think the the mindset shift uh, goes back to those sort of points we talked about in terms of recruiting. Uh, if you're not anxious to continue to learn through your career, if that's not one of your priorities to invest in yourself in your career. Um, yeah, you're kind of in, you're going to be in trouble, uh, and certainly in this environment, you will be definitely in trouble. So, to some degree, I would say, and for the traditional programmer, hey, what have you learned in the last year? I mean, you picked up a new language, a new framework, so are you still learning or not? If you're not learning, find yourself another job, whether it's in the same company or a different company. Go find yourself another job because uh, you're you're not investing in yourself enough. When your skill becomes commodity and people put spreadsheets together and tell what rates are going to charge, this is when you lose your job to the offshore firms. Uh, because they can check the same boxes you can check. Uh, what are you doing that's different? So for a traditional programmer, you know, again, ask your question, are you learning something new? Or am I doing the same thing this year that I did last year? If so, why am I still here? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
and particularly the the offshore part because um with with uh everything becoming so much more spe- specialized if you're generic then um you know you you lose a lot of power so to speak well i would say if in a complex environment that we work in the full stack developers are have competitive advantage uh, because i can give them a problem they can solve it uh, if you're just a front-end specialist, uh, you have to have a back-end guy to work with. And maybe somebody helps you figure out how to deploy the software. And maybe somebody's going to help you do, you know, fundamental screen designs. You need a lot of help in order to get something accomplished. That doesn't make you as valuable as a full-stack developer. Uh, when we set up this uh, situation in London, we basically were looking for full-stack developers. We paid them on the same salary range we paid the experts. You could be an expert in database, or you could be competent in five or seven different other things. And we would pay you the same thing. And we actually treasured our, really treasured our full stack developers because I could give them a problem and walk away. The other guys need supervision. That's overhead. And it takes time. And that's, a, that's an overhead. So do you think the, the specialist, uh, sort of roles became such because of the way organizations are structured? Yeah, it goes back to the fallacy that, uh, you know, from the industrial revolution. That if you're a specialist, you're faster. So let's make sure you only do the work you're very fastest in. Uh, and what the Japanese taught us with the just-in-time movement, which became the agile movement, um, what they really taught us was that we are undervaluing the transition time between these specialists. That the waiting time that that happens when I lay something aside and have to do that, or the, even the handoff cost of building these artifacts to hand off to the next guy, we're undervalued how much time that takes. And we also uh, have undervalued the time to market. We understand time to market is important, but we didn't understand that we were killing time to market by having these specialists. So, yeah, the specialist is more effective than the individual, than sort of the average individual. But all the other costs associated with that were being ignored. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Well, thanks so much, uh, Fred. I do appreciate it. Given given all that we've discussed today, what, what final advice would you give uh the audience as they plan their careers or they they look to sort of branch out and, and move forward? I would say if you're not feeling a little uncomfortable at your work today because problems a little bit too hard, you're not you're not in the right environment. Yep, that's great advice. Thanks so much. Thank you. New Relic is partnering with MLB for the Basis Coded Technology Challenge. Small teams will have the opportunity to hack at the convergence of sports and technology while utilizing proprietary APIs and private data provided by MLB. The finalist teams will be flown to the World Series for an overnight software development competition. Check out more details at basescoded.com.